I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A brutal act of violence against a Native American woman in her own home highlights an epidemic of violence. The community rallied to fight for justice for this woman. But what about all the other forgotten women? Will they ever receive that same justice? This is episode 48, the Deborah Black Crow McNeil story. Hi, Amy. Great to see you. Hi, Megan. Is it great to see me too? (laughs) I hope. Hi, Megan. Great to see you. All right, Amy. I wanted to cover this case, the Deborah Black Crow McNeil case, for a while because it highlights an even bigger issue that doesn't get a lot of media attention. And that is the shocking number of violent crimes committed against Native American women and the lack of response to these crimes. We'd like to thank our student... Researcher who helped, thank you, Danielle Kobolowski. Thanks, Danielle. And before we also get into the details, we'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters, who we are so grateful for. Let's do it. Who do we have today? A big thank you to Shelly Gonzalez. Thank you, Shelly. And Jennifer Allison. Thank you, Jennifer. And Cassie Fowler, who was at our AMA Happy Hour. Oh, thank you, Cassie. So fun. And thanks for coming to that. We also have Adriana from San Diego. Oh, 
I love Leave San my Diego. heart in San Diego. <laughs> we have a couple other supporters. We're very lucky and we're very grateful. We have Kayla Lukavietsky. Thank you, Kayla. I hope I got your name right, Kayla. And we have Vero, who's from London. Oh. And Vero listens to our podcast on virtual dates with her boyfriend. Oh. Sweet, right? That's really cute. And we appreciate his support, too. Yes. And Amy, why don't you tell them what's on the horizon? We're only... 30 patrons away from unlocking an exclusive extra episode a month. I know it and I'm gearing up already and I'm already starting to work on extra episodes. I already have my first one ready to go. All right. Well, thank you. We hope we get there soon. Thanks to all of you who support the show through donations and otherwise. And if you're interested in getting ad-free episodes, more engagement and other perks, check out the Patreon link in our show notes. On another note, uh, I'd like to actually ask for possibly help from the audience. We do have a brilliant audience. We do. We get, we get so much information from you guys and we appreciate it. As many of you know, we're working on Direct Appeal Season 2 right now. And we're looking for someone who is in forensic pathology or who works as a medical examiner to possibly consult on this case. So if any of you are working in this field or know someone who is and are interested in helping us with Direct Appeal Season 2, we would be super excited and super grateful. Where could they reach us? So if you're interested, please uh, shoot me an email at info at directappealpodcast.com. And now, let's get to today's episode. Can't wait to hear it. Let's begin by talking about who the victim was here. Deborah Black Crow McNeil, and I'll refer to her as Deborah going forward, was an enrolled member of the Agalala Lakota Sioux Tribe. She was 39 years old and six months pregnant at the time with a baby girl who she planned on naming Samara. Deborah had four other children from her previous marriage. After Deborah had been divorced, she had been separated from some of her children while they lived with their father, but later the four would be reunited. Deborah was originally from Las Vegas, Nevada, but she moved to California when she met Rodney McNeil, with whom it was reported she had a tumultuous relationship, with several disturbances being reported to the police. Rodney described their relationship as a codependent, abusive relationship where they both did things to each other. According to Rodney, Deborah would Deborah would destroy things and break items in the house and threatened to do things like drive into a wall. Rodney said he would take her car keys so that she couldn't follow through with these threats. And he used his training as a probation officer for juveniles to restrain Deborah. Yes, that's how he's framing this, as a mutually tumultuous relationship where his violence was frequently defensive and justified. I just want you to see the setup mm-hmm. and where we're going with this. Um, because, you know, the reports about a tumultuous relationship came from Rodney. Mm -hmm. However, Chantel, Deborah's daughter, has very different memories of the events in their home. She lived with her biological father, but would still visit her mother occasionally before reuniting. Chantel said that her mother felt the need to hide special items, even sending photographs of hers to Haynes for safekeeping. During one of Chantel's visits, Deborah was already pregnant, and Rodney's daughters from his previous marriage were visiting as well. One daughter threw up and wet the bed, and McNeil apparently made Deborah clean it up despite her being very sick herself due to her pregnancy. Rodney once destroyed Chantel's grandfather's Native American bonework, and after Chantel yelled at him, Rodney took Deborah's eyeglasses, contacts, and other information and 
fled the house. Deborah was legally blind without these glasses, so she really couldn't see. Rodney eventually brought the items back the next day after Chantelle and her mother had called the cops and Deborah had begged Rodney on the phone to return with her things. In another instance recounted by Chantelle, Rodney twisted Deborah's arm behind her back while they were still dating. But despite these early red flags, Deborah and Rodney would still go on to get married. The relationship lasted just two years until the events of March 10th, 1997. The following account of the events came from Rodney McNeil. So keep that in mind when we go through this, when we form our conclusions. Rodney said that he left for work the morning of March 10th after working on a paper for college where he was pursuing a master's degree. Rodney said that Deborah called him at work and they had an argument about a tax return check and what the money would be used for as Deborah wanted to use it on a trip to Las Vegas to visit some of her other children who lived with her ex-husband. But Rodney wanted to use it to replace some of the items in the house that had been broken during their fights. This is according mm -hmm. to Rodney. A little while later, Rodney said that Deborah called back to apologize, stating that she had been mad, I guess, and broken more things around the house, but that she had made an appointment with a mental health professional and wanted Rodney to come back to the house to drive her to this appointment. That makes no sense. I don't think that makes sense either. And it seems like a convenient story for him for a reason why mm -hmm. he's going back. And again, painting him in a light that seems, you know, oh, he's helping her. She's sick. She's, you know, she's the problem. And no one's corroborating any of this. Nope. All right. Rodney says when he arrived, he saw what he thought was ketchup on the floor. And so he looked through the house for his wife before finding her in the bathroom connected to the master bedroom. Deborah was in the bathtub with a clothing hamper and a penny jar on top of her. Rodney could not recall if there was water in the tub or not, though records confirm that there was water present in the tub. Okay. Bizarre items, mm -hmm. right? The hamper to weight her, to hold her, to cover her. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it, it's unclear at this point. Rodney said that he removed the items off of her and reached for her to sit her up. But as he did this, Deborah's head rolled back, her mouth half open, and her eyes closed. Rodney, realizing that his wife was dead, dropped her back into the tub. He said that he couldn't pull her out, despite Deborah being only 110 pounds. She was six months pregnant, though? She was six months pregnant, but she was small. Mm -hmm. She was, I mean, she was like your size. How big was he? Perhaps she was a little bit bigger at that time. Maybe that 110 is not an exact recount. Either way, he was a bigger man. Yeah, I couldn't tell you his exact size, but if you look him up, he's substantially larger. Okay. We've talked about this issue before, too, about picking people up. I mean, we're also working on something, uh, another case in which we're addressing whether or not mm -hmm. you can lift someone out of a tub. I think he should have been able to lift her. But, you know, he might have been panicked, shocked, who knows. According to Rodney, he said that he ran back through the house in search of a phone, noticing how the house was in disarray and the phone was missing. Without a phone in the house, Rodney said that he ran to his neighbor. When they didn't come, the first neighbor he went to, when they didn't come to the door, he ran to another neighbor, then returned to the first neighbor he tried. Eventually, one of the neighbors answered and McNeil used the phone to call the police and the police arrived several minutes later. Rodney would later find out that a racial slur was written on the bathroom mirror, but he said that he didn't see it at the time of the crime. 
The slur apparently read N-word lover. He was a black male, and the implication is that this was a racially motivated offense. This seems, again, convenient. Uh, it seems like he's setting up a narrative. It does seem like he's trying to set up, like, the house is in disarray, the phone's missing. Uh, you know, there's the, giving lots of different possible scenarios here to explain, you know, why he is not a suspect and why, you know, again, there should be they should be looking for someone mm-hmm. else is what I think. Police found Deborah, who had been stabbed 15 times and strangled to death, with strangulation listed as her official cause of death. He didn't notice that she was stabbed when he went to see He didn't report it. Yeah, he didn't say anything about it. Chemicals were also poured on her body, leaving behind burns, because it looks like it looked like there was an attempt to clean her up. Hmm. We've seen this with a couple of cases as well. Um, It was um, Shannon Christian. Where they're pouring bleach on people. Ugh. And I mean, that one yes. was terrible. Uh-huh. I think we also talked about this with Lavina Johnson, correct? That was wounds that they were like trying to hide DNA evidence by pouring a corrosive substance. It was a corrosive substance. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So now we have Deborah, who's deceased. She's obviously been murdered, a very vicious and brutal crime. We have the initial suspects. First up, Rodney McNeil. Mm-hmm. He is the spouse. He is the person to find her body. He ran to the neighbors for help. He was the primary suspect, and he was later arrested after the police discovered several domestic violence reports. That's enough probable cause? That's a really good question, and we're going to talk about that because claims later on are going to be, that's not exactly indicative Mm -hmm. of murder. And we Mm -hmm. have seen domestic violence cases that either wind up in murder, but those that don't. Mm -hmm. Rodney was a self-described military brat, moving around a lot as a child. He had a bachelor's degree in criminal law. And up until the murder of Deborah, he had no prior criminal history other than some petty theft as a kid. Mm-hmm. But that was also just self-reported. Rodney also said, though, and this is interesting, he said that his mother regularly stole things, not because she had to, but because she did. And he witnessed her theft. And beyond that, he once stole something. I think he said it was a video game. And he came home and he told his mom and He was waiting to see her reaction. Her reaction was not like, how could you steal that? Take it back. And he said after that point, um, he basically took that as approval from his mom. And she started taking him around, like to steal things with her. So they kind of became accomplices in that way. And it seemed pretty obvious that his dad wasn't around a lot in the service. Um, So I think he, you know, spent more time with his mother. Rodney said that there was no history of abuse in his family. He was not abused child. He also admitted to having a prior history of domestic violence involving not only Deborah, but another former partner named Amber, who was the mother of his children. Additionally, Rodney admitted to committing crimes such as insurance fraud and purchasing stolen property during his time working as a probation officer. That's not allowed. (laughs) (laughs) They they usually prohibit that, you know, when you're in law enforcement. You know, he said, in fact, he purchased a lot of stolen items and he didn't think he was doing really anything wrong. Well, because his mother made him seem like it was okay. Is that kind of what he's hanging his head on? Yes and no. He he was working in law enforcement at the time. So obviously he knew it was wrong. He knows it's wrong. He's a fully developed. He's not a child anymore. His brain's fully developed. But he said that, and this is interesting, he said that he felt like he was better than the offenders he supervised and not really a criminal himself because of his accomplishments. Because he was, they were like juvenile delinquents, but he had a degree. He was getting a master's degree. So he felt like the superior person. You know I want to talk theory, but 
I'll say oh, that I for later. <laughs> I can't even wait to talk theory with mm-hmm. you. Um, shortly after Deborah's death, Rodney tried to claim an insurance policy on her, claiming he was the sole beneficiary, despite her having four living children. The life insurance policy was for $100,000. Something to keep in mind. It's one of those numbers where it's, you know, that's something, but it's not, you know, the highest we've heard of. Due to the suspicious nature of the policy, though, the insurance company alerted the police and it seems he may have tried to commit insurance fraud again related to this event. So what was suspicious? I think what was suspicious was that it was, well, the way Deborah died immediately also that she had other children. I don't think it was clear that he was the actual beneficiary. Gotcha. They thought that he was perhaps trying to forge her policy. So he, it's possible that he was trying to commit insurance fraud again. And also think about this, defrauding her children of that money. Yeah. Um, so not he's nice. <laughs> he's not a nice guy. But Amy, let's get to suspect number two, because suspect number two is also a real possibility here. His name is Jeff West. Who was Jeff West? He was Rodney's half-brother, having served time for other murders, by the way. West was the only other person who knew about the marital issues between Deborah and Rodney, and it was suggested that West murdered Deborah in order to help his brother out and stage a robbery to throw the suspicion off both himself and Rodney. According to Rodney, West had a violent streak, obviously, and previously tried to kill their stepfather. He had pulled a gun on Amber, who was the mother of Rodney's children, and was currently serving a prison sentence for two murders. So he was in prison when Deborah's murder happened? He wasn't in prison when the murder happened. He but was in prison, yeah, soon after. West confessed to Deborah's murder to a friend and to Rodney's sister. Both testified in court to this. The judge said that the friend and Rodney's sister lacked credibility, especially considering that the sister lied during the investigation and the familial bias. And the judge said the friend didn't come forward soon enough. So it wasn't the jury didn't hear from either? They testified in front uh, like of the judge. Like a preliminary hearing or something? Yes, but okay. the judge didn't allow it because of the credibility issues. Got it. Sorry. But that makes sense because usually the judge checks out witnesses before they testify. Did West and Rodney have an estranged relationship or they were close. They were not estranged. I don't know how close they were, but they definitely were not estranged. West was never arrested or implicated further in the crime. So he's a pretty credible second suspect, though. It could be also if he's a violent guy with a violent streak, there could be an offer. I'll split the insurance money with you. People have killed for a lot less. I mean, it seems like if the half-brother was involved, then Rodney's involved, too. I don't see why he would have done it without. Yeah, I would have to. I know I'm probably. No, I would have to. I, I do agree with that. Okay. And there's a third suspect, although I wouldn't give the suspect much credibility, but I'll tell you why we're going to talk about her. Terry Lynn Walker Upele. She was Deborah's best friend and confidant. She visited the couple's home on multiple occasions, as you would with your best friend. Mm -hmm. She once noticed that there was very little food in the house. When she asked Deborah why, Deborah said that Rodney controlled all the money and that he wouldn't give her money for groceries. That's something to keep in mind because that's something that abusers do. One of the ways they abuse their victims, Mm -hmm. especially in the domestics, is to financially control everything. She was the last person to see Deborah alive and was there at the house when Deborah supposedly called Rodney. And that's the only reason she's a suspect here. Terry Lynn's work was very close to Deborah's home, and so that's why she would visit during her lunch breaks. On the day of the murder, she left the house around 11.55 a.m., and later when she was back at work, she had gotten a call that something happened to Deborah. So very, very quickly after their visit... 
again, last person to if see her. If someone was staking out the house, though, they were waiting for her to leave before doing something. That would be a really good point. Also, I think it's highly unlikely, given the injuries, given the fact that there was no conflict, but last person. Um, according to her, Rodney would drive around outside her house and park at places she was at to intimidate her. I'm not sure for what purpose. We cannot verify this information, but the last person to see the deceased is always a suspect. And in this case, I think it was just easy to rule her out very quickly, Mm -hmm. which brought the police right back to Rodney. So Rodney McNeil was arrested. He was charged with murder and went to trial in 2000. Part of his defense was that he didn't have any time or opportunity to commit the crime. Rodney was at his office at 12.15 p.m. and called police at 12.29 p.m. after finding his wife's body. Corroborated? Corroborated, yes. By eyewitnesses, surveillance? The phone call by him, yes. So the office is an eight-minute drive from Rodney's home, which leaves only about five minutes of unaccounted time. Mm. Police arrived shortly after. A witness did say that Rodney was seen at his home at 12.15, not his office. However, this was just one neighbor who was elderly and had become senile. So that was discounted. Unfortunately, you know, wasn't the best eyewitness. It could have been true, but there was more corroboration to show that his story about the timeline was correct. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter. Ultimately, on May 3rd, 2000, Rodney was convicted of two counts of second degree murder and sentenced to two Sentences of 15 years to life, one for Deborah and one for their unborn baby. Murder and only 15 to life? So that's two sentences of 15 years to life for a total of 30 years to life. That makes more sense. But the story wasn't over here. Rodney caught a break. The California Innocence Project took up his case. What? Yes, and filed a writ of habeas corpus where they are trying to show that a third person actually committed the murder. Do they have untested DNA? Well, here's what we got. First of all, namely, they're looking to his Mm half-brother, Jeff West, and that's who they're implicating, because there were similarities to the other murders that Jeff had committed. Mm -hmm. Upon killing his victims, Jeff West placed them in the bathtub. So there were similar circumstances. Their argument was that Rodney only arrived a few minutes before the police arrived on the scene, which, again, the timing would not Mm -hmm. give him any opportunity, which is a fairly strong argument. They also said Rodney didn't have any blood on him, which would have definitely occurred with the violent nature of the crime, and he wouldn't have had time to clean up. In addition, there were unidentified hair and fibers on Deborah's body. They argue that Rodney was wrongfully convicted and targeted due to his race, being a black man married to a white woman, and the fact that much of his conviction was built upon his history as a violent romantic Didn't partner. Didn't you say that she was Native American? Absolutely. This okay. was a total mischaracterization and totally misleading. I'm so confused with so many things. The Innocence Project doesn't just take any case. There has to be more to this story. Well, they don't. But they, they think the additional fibers and hairs and the lack of time, they believe that was enough. I, I, I was I'm, surprised, I'm too. I'm shocked. I was surprised, too. Chantel, Deborah's daughter, has since fought back, especially about those claims of her mother being a white woman mm-hmm. um, and about the domestic incidents. Stating- so who said she's a white? I'm sorry to interrupt. Who characterized her as a white woman? His defense, his appeals team, his appellate team. Chantel has been very vocal and she's also, you know, spoken about the violence that she witnessed, these domestic disputes between her mother and her stepfather as a child. 
She also called out, it's the appellate attorney. So she called out the California Innocence Project for slander as they incorrectly classified Deborah as a white woman when she is an enrolled member of the Agalala Sioux tribe and, in fact, an indigenous woman. What would be the reason for misclassifying this woman's race? To make it look like he was racially prosecuted. Uh, that's just... I don't think I that, don't like that. It doesn't work here no, either. it doesn't. Chantel argued that this was a blatant manipulation of the truth on the California Innocence Project's part in order to twist the narrative and say that McNeil was a victim of a racist justice system. And we know this, Amy. We talk about this all the time. We know that the criminal justice system has racial bias and disproportionately arrests, convicts, and kills people of color, particularly black men. But here I think that the California Innocence Project is also denying Deborah of her identity. Mm-hmm. And they're using this argument inappropriately. This was not this was not true. And that's simply what it is. Post-conviction DNA testing, though, was inconclusive. And the San Bernardino Superior Court refused to overturn the conviction. So Rodney's sentence would stand until another surprising turn of events in this case. In the wake of COVID, Governor Gavin Newsom pardoned or commuted the sentences of those who were nonviolent or who had finished most of their sentences for fear of an outbreak happening in prisons. Some of this, as we know, that has happened. In doing so, though, Rodney's sentence was commuted from 30 years to life to 22 years to life, meaning that at that time he became eligible for parole. Chantel fought hard against this, taking out a petition on change.org where she got 7,323 signatures. She wasn't even directly told about Rodney being considered for parole either, and she contacted the National Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Organization for help. Through that organization, Chantel was put into contact with South Dakota State Representative Perry Poirier who was also a member of the Agalala Sioux Tribe. With help from other people, including State Representative Tamara St. John, former Agalala Sioux Tribal Chairman Julian Bear Runner, and Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Chairman Harold Frazier, they submitted letters to the state of California asking for Rodney to be kept in prison. You know, Chantal was able to, able to mobilize a lot of people to support her. And on September 3rd, 2020, An initial parole hearing done over Zoom for Rodney was conducted by two commissioners, where it ended in a tie because the two could not decide. Let me just say, this is not normally how it's done. Do you know why there's always three or five or seven? Yes, an odd number. So there's a tiebreaker. This doesn't make any sense. If they're going to have two, why not just have three? Um, I'm not sure what the purpose was. But in any event, the case, because it was a tie, had to go to Um, from review to go to the entire parole board. And on October 20th, 2020, the parole board granted Rodney parole. But just so you know, Amy, it's not the end of the story. (laughs) In a totally surprising move in January 2021, Gavin Newsom reversed the parole board decision. Newsom acknowledged that McNeil had made steps towards rehabilitation, including attending programs, including taking domestic violence classes, veterans group, obtaining associate degrees, but said he found Rodney to be an unreasonable danger to society if released from prison at that time. Newsom considered Rodney's past relationships with women prior to Deborah's murder and including his former wife were marked by coercive control and abuse. During his initial parole hearing, Rodney admitted to assaulting Deborah 
five to six times. And he also admitted to previously assaulting his wife. So Newsom said there was just too much evidence, too overwhelming to show that he should stay. But you realize the irony here is that Newsom was the one who converted a sentence in the first place. Yes. The parole board goes along and then, you know, they he, Newsom goes ahead and works against that. I, I have to imagine it's because he saw how much support yeah. um, there was against. To this day, Mr. McNeil is currently incarcerated. So that is the end of this story. Um, but not the end of today's episode, because we have a couple of really important topics to dig into. Sorry, can I just say really quick? Um, you do know who else was in that group that he commuted? No, who? Joanne Parks. Shut up. Yeah, he commuted, actually, only four people he commuted the sentences, and one of the others was Joanne Park. Someone we felt deserved it. Yes, so. go check out that episode. First of all, it, let's talk about Rodney's, let's talk about the causes of Rodney's behavior, if you believe he's the killer. Even if you, you had said, even if you don't believe he did, well, you think he did it. And I, I think he, I think he's involved. That timeline, I'm having trouble with the timeline. Timeline's troubling, very troubling. But even if they point to his half-brother, I mean, the half-brother didn't just go ahead and do this just as a favor, right? Or just as a, like, a, I'm just going to go kill her. He has to be, if you believe that even if half-brother did it, then he probably is involved. I had said that before, and I feel that way. But you know how I feel also when the Innocence Project takes a case, there must be something we don't know. I cannot imagine they took the case based on just this information. Well... No, hair, I'm sorry, actually, hairs and fibers that didn't belong being found on her body in the tub. I mean, we've talked about hairs and fibers. Did they check it and it didn't match him? It's unknown? It said it was inconclusive. Inconclusive. Okay. Yeah, but I imagine there was enough that they thought that presented some real doubt. Okay. The timeline does, I mean, that is a big, uh, you know, problem as well. But let's say you believe he's the killer. Mm -hmm. How would you explain this? you have any theories? Differential reinforcement. Ah, okay. And what is differential reinforcement? For Rodney, I think that comes into play here. When, starting at a young age when he would steal things and he would get positive reinforcement. And then when he worked for probation and he would break the law, he never got fired. He continued to, I assume, climb the ranks or at least stay where he was. He never got reprimanded. So that keeps reinforcing that this behavior is okay. Yep. That's... And in domestic violence, if, if all of those claims were true... He was still out and about working and living his life, although he kept committing these crimes. Yeah, that's the first theory I've had, just so you know. I've got two. I had learning theory, which is differential reinforcement as well. Mm -hmm. And for the exact same reasons, I feel like his behavior was reinforced over and over again. He doesn't get caught. He doesn't get punished. Um, his mother was rewarding him. Mm -hmm. But I see something else, which for, for the actual murder, maybe too, and for some of the crimes, and because of the way he described feeling better than some others. Neutralization theory. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I wanted to say it earlier. Damn it. Yes, but you can go, you go ahead and explain it. Okay, so <laughs> this was my second one. I think that the techniques of neutralization, um, these are situational excuses that allow a person who feels or sees themselves as a positive or a good person or it relieves them of the guilt they feel or they would feel. Justifications. Yeah, to commit crimes. So there's a couple, um, denial of responsibility. So, you know, it's not really my fault. I, I kind of had to do it, which is how he described, I had to restrain Deborah. Yeah. Or denial of victim. Oh, no, no, no. She wasn't the victim. I was. Mm -hmm. Or denial of injury. Yep. So I also see if Rodney's guilty. These are the two theories that I would say. I say that he made perfect excuses for his own bad behavior. And if his brother was maybe 
the person who actually did it. He would also be using techniques of neutralization by claiming he's innocent. Well, I'm not the one who actually stabbed her. I just happened to leave the door open and give the knife to my brother or whatever. No, you're right. Yeah. He might be able to f- still feel you know, justified because he didn't get his hands dirty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Beyond that, I want to talk about um, another big issue here, and that is the victimization of indigenous women. And I know this is an issue you and I have talked about before. Gavin Newsom had made it a point to acknowledge the trends of violence towards indigenous women and how Rodney's attack on Deborah perpetuated this trend. Deborah Maytubi Shipman, director and founder of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, spoke about Rodney's parole hearings, stating that only 15% of murders that happen to Native American women are even investigated, let alone prosecuted. Shocking number, right? Other numbers here. Native American women are victims of domestic violence 50% more than the next highest group and are murdered at 10 times higher than the national average. Also, one in three are victims of rape, usually at the hands of non-Indigenous men. And Megan, those numbers are definitely higher because we know they're underreported. I was going to say that, but these numbers are super, um, super high. According to the National Crime Information Center, 5,700 Indigenous women were reported missing in 2016, but only 116 of those were logged into the Federal Missing Persons Database. So, Amy, what are the causes of this problem and what's being done? First, there's a pattern of transient male workers like oil workers, miners and such, and they're setting up these camps called man camps in remote places near the work. But because it's near the work in the in the area, it's usually near tribal lands as well. And they're isolated for long periods of time with stressful jobs, long hours, there becomes a very high rate of substance abuse. These places are, they're like kind of hot spots for generating this type of violence. And violence on reservations are handled differently. No, no, it's a good point. It's the problem is that these places fall between jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. um, at least the tribal lands do. So it becomes an issue. Some of these lands are federal, while some come under the jurisdiction of the state. Mm -hmm. Um, And it depends on who the perpetrator and the victim are, because jurisdiction varies according to whether someone is Native American or non-Native American. Also complicated by the fact that tribal officers have some authority, but not the authority to prosecute rape. So the jurisdiction issue is the most complicated you know, I actually became really interested in this issue. There was a movie. It's it's not based on a true story, but it's dedicated to this woman. Have you ever heard of Wind River? Nope. It's about a, a, a young Native American girl that goes missing, and it's about the their hunt or their quest to find her and find out what happened. And it highlights, um, I won't give away the ending, but it highlights so well mm. some of these issues, and it gives you some of the facts. And I encourage people, if you're interested in this topic, it was a really good movie. So while I just gave you some of the news that is not so encouraging, there is some encouraging news there, Amy. There is a movement now to help murdered and missing indigenous women, and it's getting some real attention with several advocacy groups emerging. Major studies conducted by the NIJ, the National Institute of Justice, and the Urban Indian Health Institute provided those numbers I referenced above and drew attention to the fact that these women were not being included in national databases. In response to that, though, the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Indian Affairs created an entirely new database that will include and track all women missing from tribal lands. Hmm. Now, this was also one of the problems. Nobody's tracking them. So we're correcting for that now. 
The 2013 reauthorization of the VAWA Act, VAWA is the Violence Against Women Act, gave tribal courts back the authority to prosecute domestic violence cases. But the authorization of 2019, um, so you know how they have these acts, they have to reauthorize them Mm -hmm. every certain number of years. The 2019 would give them further authority to prosecute cases of sexual violence and stalking that happens on their lands. But this act failed. It failed in 2019. However, it's up again for reconsideration. So if you want to help, if you're interested, you can go to change.org and sign the Justice for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women petition. Mm -hmm. A few more things before we go today. Savannah's Act, which also failed to pass in 2019, is also up for reconsideration and would close those reporting gaps between jurisdictions, as well as the Not Invisible Act, which would also increase data reporting and sharing efforts. These acts are also on the docket, so if you're interested, contact your representatives and support these acts, or if you just want to learn more. You can also donate to the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. And beyond that, Amy, you can just talk about these issues with people you know, educate others, share your knowledge in everyday conversation. Thank you so much for all of those action items. There's really a lot that our listeners could do. Yeah, you know, I'm, I was more encouraged than I thought I would be at the end because I was happy to see that all of these acts are on the docket and there's, there, there's a movement to pass them and we can do things about this. Mm-hmm. So definitely encourage you. um, And I'm sure there's other things that, you know, other ways that you can help that we may not have listed. Mm -hmm. Feel free to let us know if you are aware of any of them. Before we go today, we'd like to take this opportunity to answer questions from our patrons. Are you ready? I love this part. Love it. The first question is from Jennifer Allison. And Jennifer wants to know, Megan, this one's definitely for you. She wants to know, in your opinion, what is the ratio of serial killers that have childhood trauma versus those that have, quote unquote, normal childhoods? It's definitely a question for me, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not really so much my opinion, but mostly what we know on the research is that the percentage is extremely high, like up in the 90 percent or higher of serial killers who have experienced childhood trauma. And what's included in that trauma? So the trauma is usually um, some form of abuse, abandonment, drugs in the home, neglect. It's usually pretty serious trauma. I I, I don't mean to, you know, Mm -hmm. prioritize one trauma over another, but it's usually quite serious. And I only actually know of a couple that had, quote unquote, normal childhoods like Dennis Rader, BTK. Mm -hmm. He had admittedly a pretty loving, you know, childhood and normal childhood. But almost, I mean, it's a very high percentage that have had severe trauma. And is it also the more you have, the more factors you have at once, the higher the likelihood? Or is it not really going to that? No, it's interesting because if you ask, like there are certain experts like Dr. Ramslin will tell you that certain people react differently. It's not a catch-all. Like you could have one traumatic event, but that sends you into a spiral in a way that one traumatic event might not for others. So it's definitely situational. But one other thing I can tell you is that along with trauma, a lot of serial killers have had serious head injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of head injury as well. So coupling that with the trauma, it's often, unfortunately, a very bad recipe. Megan, it sounds like this is something that you've been working on a lot lately. Well, hint, hint. <laughs> we don't want to give anything away, but I may be working on something related to this for our audience. Yes. Stay tuned. All right. The last question today is from Adriana 
And I love this question, Megan. You're going to laugh. Have either of you ladies ever thought of living somewhere else besides New Jersey? Every day of my life. Every (laughs) single day of my life. Yes. Yes. All right, Amy, you go first. Oh, boy. Um, Listen, if it wasn't for family, I'm grateful that I have family. But if I did not have family, I would not be in New Jersey. I would be... Possibly in another country, maybe New Zealand, maybe Australia. But if I was going to stay in this country, I think I would have to say Denver, possibly San Diego. And I'm pretty sure, Adriana, that's where you're from. So um, I would also not mind living in like Maine or Vermont. Your turn. We work in Jersey, obviously. That is... Uh, the primary reason I'm here, we're actually looking right now to possibly relocate mm-hmm. to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately down the line, yeah, our I'm right in line with you. We, yes, would love Colorado. James and I are both interested in Colorado or San Diego because his family is from there. I would not move to New Zealand because I can't fly that far. You know, my fear of flying. Yes. Um, Oregon, another one. Oregon is gorgeous. You haven't been yet, right? I haven't, but I would put Wyoming on my list too. Okay. I loved Cody, Wyoming. I really liked it there. And I really loved Golden, Colorado. Oh, I could just go on Golden all day. Col- and I love Chico, California. Have I you mean, been to Chico, California? Oh, I don't think I have. It's but North, it's... No, I haven't been. Oh, but Northern sure California has. is incredible. Yeah, I feel like you and I will probably both wind up at some point on the West Coast. I think so. It depends on... Actually, I have a brother in San Fran, mm-hmm. around San Fran. So maybe. So yes, we fantasize about the places that we're going to live. Great question. And I loved it. Thank you so much for that question. And thank thank you you. everyone today for listening. Catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include two articles from The Sun, Change.org, Native News Online, Unicorn Riot, Rodney McNeil's Parole Transcript, an article from Cultural Survival, and a report from the Urban Indian Health Institute. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.